Good evening, everyone. You're in the right place at the right time. This is Coast to Coast AM. Blasting out of the Mojave Desert like a Scirocco. Blazing across the land. Slamming into your radio like a supercharged nanoparticle of unobtainium. Greetings from the boldest, bawdiest, most outrageous city in the world, the planetary capital of sun, fun, sin, sex, and secrets. My not-so-humble hometown, Las Vegas, Nevada. My name is George Knapp, your occasional host, designated driver of the airwaves, and moderator of tonight's upcoming cacophonous cavalcade of conversation. Here in the coast-to-coast command bunker, the entire staff is jazzed that we will be returning to the UFO subject tonight. And uh, when I say entire staff, I mean the two cats that live down here with me, uh, 50 levels below the surface. They don't like it when I stray too far away from the bedrock subjects that Coast listeners tune in to hear. So I've had some great interviews over the last two months when I've been here, but there, there weren't any aliens or abductions or intrusive probes in any of them. And the cats let me hear about it. So tonight we'll get right to business with a report from the front lines. One of the biggest UFO conferences in the world has been underway for the last few days. Contact in the Desert, it's called. Uh, I was not able to get there myself. Uh, They've been cordial in inviting me to check it out, to come cover it, to participate. But the timing's kind of bad for me because of my day job. May sweeps, we call it. It's a pretty intense time in the news biz. But my colleague, Jeremy Corbell, not only lives near the site of the conference, out in the desert of Southern California, around Joshua Tree, but he also was one of the featured speakers this year. He got to see it from the perspective of both sides of the stage, as an audience member and as a speaker, so he will be here momentarily to tell us what he saw, what he heard, was there any breaking news, any new evidence, any new theories, how the audiences reacted, and uh, overall what the vibe was like, and just how crazy did it get. Jeremy's been my guest several times over the last couple of years. He's an investigative filmmaker. He has a keen eye, digs deep, and he has a built-in BS detector. So it'll be kind of fun to hear what he thinks about this event and also about his own presentation, which is provocative even by UFO standards, the flying saucer mystery as seen through the prism of A Clockwork Orange. Remember that movie? It's kind of a look at manipulation on a grand scale, whether we are all being misled, distracted, messed with on a cosmic scale. It's something we've touched on a few times on this program over the years, so I look forward to hearing his new take on it and uh, what it might mean going forward. Jeremy Corbell joins me in just a few minutes. And by the way, howdy to all the folks at Contact in the Desert. I think we've got a few of them listening tonight, tuning in from that gathering. Uh, In the second half of the program this evening, we look at the social, cultural, and musical legacy of a landmark event. It happened the first week of June 1967, coming up on 50 years ago. Is that possible, 50 years? It was an album, ostensibly a rock album, by the biggest name in the entertainment world back then, the Beatles. The, The album was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and it changed pretty much everything. It changed how people listened to and bought popular music. It changed radio. It changed how albums are packaged. It changed our ideas about what rock and roll is or could be. And it coincided with, some would say, ushered in what came to be known as the summer of love, an explosion of creativity and social change, some of it good, some of it bad. Uh, But the consequences are still being played out. Uh, Musically, 
There was nothing like it. The album is widely considered the best rock album of all time, certainly the most influential. And here we are 50 years later, people still listening to it, talking about it, uh, debating its merits, writing about how it spilled over into so many non-musical aspects of everyday life. Bruce Spizer is one of the best-known and most respected Beatles experts in the world. He's written eight previous books about the band, its music, its impact. His latest project is a little different from those earlier works, though. It is written from the fan perspective. If you were alive back then, if you're old enough to appreciate the moment, uh, chances are you remember the first time you, you peeled off the cellophane and put the needle down to listen to that album. Uh, Some fans had to ask themselves, you know, what the heck is this? What happened to the mop-top Beatles and their zippy little pop tunes? It was the same experience for fans all over the world, and it it is amazing how clearly music fans remember that moment, that period in their lives. Bruce Spizer joins me a little bit later tonight, and I think that should be fun, even for people who might disagree and think that Sgt. Pepper is not all it's cracked up to be. Our webmaster, uh, Lex, and I put together our usual assortment of news items and oddities called from various sources all over the place. We call it Naps News, and you can find it on the Coast to Coast website. Tonight's collection includes a couple of stories that look at big picture questions. One is an article about the search for evidence related to the existence of parallel universes. Do we live in a multiverse? Because if so, then there is an infinite number of versions of you. And I hope they're all listening to Coast in whatever reality they call home, uh, no matter how many ears they have on their hairless, bald, gray heads. Uh, Also, a uh, speculative look at uh, whether there are portals to other realities. Are there places where the world is thin, to quote an old Irish saying, places where other realities bleed into ours? You know, we've often talked about what might happen if there is a confirmed contact with an advanced intelligence, an alien race, something more advanced than us. The predictions are generally pretty dire. So flip the script on that. What happens if we find an alien civilization, but we're more advanced than them? My guess is it would be bad news for them, given our uh, track record on that sort of thing. But check out the story we posted. Uh, Also, a Beatles story. It's about the 50th anniversary of the album, as reported from the British perspective. That and more in Naps News on the Coast website. While you're there, check out how to become a Coast Insider. You never have to worry about being too tired to go to work in the morning. You can listen anytime, as many times as you want, on multiple devices. It costs uh, pennies a day. It's a really good deal. You gain access to a vast archive of previous programs that you can listen to and again and again and it's a good deal and you can also subscribe to george norrie's television show beyond belief which covers many of the topics that we explore here and i think george was present for contact in the desert i think his name was listed at the top love to hear his talk and we'll be interested to hear him tomorrow night uh, if he shares his impressions uh, of what happened over the weekend By the way, before we forget, one year ago tonight, two of our Coast listeners got hitched. Zach and Mary listen to the show every night, they say, and they are listening tonight. Zach wanted to surprise Mary by giving her an on-the-air anniversary wish, and uh, I don't normally do this, but I want to say congratulations to both, and to say to Mary, don't let Zach off the hook this easily. Uh, We're glad you're listening tonight, but he needs to take you out for your anniversary and spend some dough, nice dinner, some flowers. We're glad you're with us tonight, but tomorrow he needs to step up to the plate. 
With that, let's assume the position. Bring in the dog and cat, put on a pot of joe, that expensive Italian roast maybe, slip into your jammies and loafers, plop down in a comfy spot, turn down the lights, and turn up the radio because we're about ready to rumble. In just a moment, investigative filmmaker Jeremy Corbell, UFOs, A Clockwork Orange. I'm George Knapp, and this is Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back. Jeremy Corbell is an investigative filmmaker uh, based in Southern California. He's been my guest on uh, this uh, program a number of times. He has explored the worlds of nanotechnology, aerospace, exotic propulsion, and an in-depth examination of the uh, life and discoveries and theories of what he calls the godfather of conspiracy, John Lear, which is sort of how he uh, met me. Uh, Lear led him to the Bob Lazar story, of course, and that led him to me. And uh, we've uh, talked about a number of uh, Jeremy's projects, uh, films that he's made about uh, off-world alien implants, uh, insights into NASA, UFO landing sites. Uh, he's developed a number of investigative sources in, uh, in the dark world who've shared uh, things with him about what the truth is behind the uh, UFO reality. And uh, his speech at the Contact in the Desert event that I mentioned before, UFOs, A Clockwork Orange, suggests the UFO phenomena itself is a display, some sort of a controlled uh, display by a mechanical or artificial intelligence. And we're going to ask him about that. Jeremy, welcome back to the program. Hey, George. Thanks for having me on again. It, it, uh, it's been a wild ride today, man. Well, it, look, start with this. Was it fun? Was it a cool event? It was so fun. That, that, that's the thing about these events. When people come to that, you know, together in the middle of the desert like this, I mean, they're in the middle of the Mojave, under the stars, they're going to have so much fun. It, it was just incredible to see, and I feel encouraged by the hunger that I saw for information. People are so nice, and they were so curious, and it, there was a se- serious hunger for information, and that is so powerful. That That's a weaponized curiosity, as I like to say. You were there last year. Do you have a sense of whether it was big, as big, or or, or bigger? Yeah, it's definitely growing, and it's evolving, and that's the thing. As people start to learn about this event and they kind of experience the environment that this event is in, it's just going to keep growing. You know, they say it's the Woodstock of UFOs, and, you know, if the Beatles were here, they'd be playing there, but it's amazing. So give me a sense of, you know, I've been to UFO conferences, not for a while, but the ones I've been to here and there, some of them, it's an older audience, you know, that you see some of the same people again and again. Is is there a younger crowd there or are they attracting uh, new generations of, of people who are curious about this? Absolutely. That's what was kind of really inspiring about this. You know, for many years, people are saying to me, you're the younger generation. Well, I'll tell you, that's no longer true. You know, at Contact, there were people of all ages. Of course, we have the, you know, hardcore UFO enthusiasts who have been looking into this subject for decades, and they are represented. But the the most interesting conversations I had are with people who are just starting to learn cases, you know, that are the bread and butter for us. I mean, it's things that, that along the way we've heard about, but people are just learning about this stuff. So absolutely young generation is now infiltrating this you know community and and search for the truth and that is so inspiring yeah we kind of forget that uh you know because of the internet uh people are discovering the topic and uh people have written about it uh, all over again or for the first time uh, names that we would take for granted that are you know people have been at this for a long time are completely new to these folks 
Right, and, and it's incredible to see the responses because if they have no preconceived notion of this, you know, kind of weird celebrity UFO worship that you end up seeing, right? They have no preconceived notion. They come in and they listen. And to hear their responses and to, to really gauge that and to see how people are being affected by the information, are they asking critical questions? Are they asking for proof? And that was kind of the big thing. You know, it was so cool. It, it was a really amazing event. I'm, I'm happy to have participated. I would participate again. Um, it, it's an incredible crowd of people. But, you know, there are issues with these things. There always are. are. And we'll get into those. I, I want to uh, do the positive part of it first. You got to, not only did you make a presentation, you got to introduce uh, two people. You got to make two introductions. And if I could look at, I haven't seen the whole list of speakers, but I would imagine if I could look at the list of speakers and pick the two that I would want to introduce, these would be the two. Who are they? I'm, I'm a really lucky guy. So I got to introduce Linda Moulton Howe, who you know, is a trailblazer and a pioneer of this field. I first saw her work through film. She made that uh, documentary series, A Strange Harvest, about cattle mutilations. And you know, from then, I got to know Linda and her research. And so I was really excited to be able to introduce her and what she was talking about this weekend. And the other person was Jacques Vallée, who's, who's a name that everybody should know. And it seemed like everybody knew Jacques Vallée from uh, his, you know, the, the response to his lecture. So that was a huge honor because I do follow Jacques' work, and you know, I'd like to say he's a colleague now through, through all the interactions. But unbelievable, just great, great lectures. I was really fortunate to be able to introduce them. All right, give me, a, give, give me the synopsis. What did Jock talk about? What was his presentation? Wow, that really threw me for a loop. It was unbelievable. So what he ended up doing was he said from the beginning, I'm here for selfish reasons. I want to get material from you. He focused his entire talk on the material composition of UFOs and the study, the, the scientific analysis, the isotopic and elemental analysis of known UFO crash sites. So he had about 15 cases. He laid out the elements, laid out the isotopes, and essentially told us his theories and why. And he's looking for more evidence. So he's trying to move that scientific meter forward in the UFO field right now on these specific issues of elemental and isotopic analysis of alleged crashed UFOs. You know, there was a period when Jacques uh, Vallée did not attend UFO events. He sort of gave up on it. And for a few years, you know, he didn't want anything to do with it. I think he got kind of disgusted with some of the directions that were being taken. And I think he felt, what's the point of, of beating my head against the wall on this? Uh, what do you, What's changed with him? I know you got to spend some other time with him outside of the conference. We, we did. And that, that was a really cool day today. And, and I asked him that exact question. And he actually left the country at some point. He was so disgusted by it. The misinformation, the disinformation, everybody trying to prove their own agenda, their own ideas, when as a, as a scientist, and you know, specifically as an information scientist, he was interested in just the data. So yeah, he was disenchanted, and it wasn't a few years. I mean, he, had, he didn't talk for decades, from what, I, from what I understand, from what he told me. He really moved away from it because it wasn't furthering the research. So what did change? That was my question to him in the introduction that I did for him. And he came right out and said it and said, the way that we're going to move this forward 
is to get physical evidence and physical proof. As a scientist, I need to be able to take a piece home or take a piece to the laboratory with me. You can come with me if it's your piece and analyze and try to understand the material composition of these pieces and why they're so anomalous. And, and he's done so. He's done that. So I think that's why he was there. Wait, he's done. He has samples that he has analyzed or has had analyzed for him of what? What is it? Absolutely. We were comparing notes today from, from a case that I'm working on. He, he, he has a number, 15, that he told us about during his lecture, 15 different samples from some very famous UFO cases where, where the UFO would come in and just basically blow up, and they were able to collect samples over a long period of time because there was such a mass amount of it to really isolated specific events that only Jacques Vallée knew about because people went to him with the information. So he is currently studying, I believe, it is 15 different samples of alleged alien craft. And does he have results? He does have results. And wow, it's amazing. Not only are they isotopically completely outside of the terrestrial norm, but he went a step further. And this is some really geeky stuff, but he, he went further. And he was saying that not only are these outside the terrestrial norm, but some of them are so pure in their form of, for example, magnesium, that he actually calculated how much money it would take to create that piece the modern technology that we have now, and it was in the trillions of dollars. So his kind of ending understanding of it was essentially that this material is fabricated. It is fabricated scientifically with processes that we do not have the capability to do. It was made. It was made by an intelligence. That was incredible to hear. You know, I, it's... Uh... I'm amazed. I'm amazed that he's taken the plunge on this. I, I mean, I've expressed my admiration and respect for him on this program many times. I think he's the most you know, important thinker and writer on this topic ever. Um, for him to go this far, is it's almost uncharacteristic uh, to be that open about him thinking that these samples are from somewhere else. It really it, it's like me off, too. He's, he's yeah. like being... He needs to be bold or something, because normally he'd be very reserved about that kind of thing. He'd withhold uh, a, a final judgment on the samples like that. Yeah, and, and you know, th there's no final judgment yet, or, or maybe there is. I mean, he was talking very boldly about it. I mean, he has the, the analysis, and he has the ability to study more samples. But I definitely did not expect that. You know, he's always been a little bit uh, of a whisper. You know, he, he would talk about strong things in a gentle way, and I respect that about him. And, and he did have that tone, but I think what it is, is if you're actually going to make a difference and move the needle forward, we need to get specific and we need to be very precise. And that is what he's done, is he's put together the ability to analyze materials that are alleged from not from this world and see if we can get a definitive scientific answer to what we're dealing with with these samples. It's, it's like the alien implant issue. It only makes a difference if you can get hardcore physical evidence and science to back up what it is that you have. So I was really impressed with what um, he talked about. Did he give a hint about analysis by whom? I mean, this kind of analysis is expensive. I can't imagine that he's doing it on his own. Is he working with someone? He is. 
he is, and, and I think he talked about that in the lecture, and essentially he, he's put together the opportunity, let's just say he put together the opportunity to analyze these on the weekend. So he's got people, scientists, he said, are really open-minded. He says, you know, if there is something that they can interrogate and look for evidence in, even if they know it's something out there, you know, they're willing to do it. So that was kind of his message, and I think that he has put this together and I think it's bold and it's strong, and I think he's going to have a lot of material sent to him, which is what he wants. And then I think that we're going to get some results. And I, I think that's, that's an important thing that he's doing right now, and it's really inspiring. So he showed up because he is soliciting people to send him stuff. That's my read on it, but yeah. at the same time, he said it. Because I set that up in the intro. I said, why are you talking again? Why are you here? What do we need to hear from you? I'm curious. Jock, why are you here? And All right. put it out there. All right, we'll take a break. I want to hear what else you saw and heard that was interesting. Tom Petty, our theme song for tonight, I Need to Know. The song is called Best Love. It's by Steve Martin and the Steep Canyon Rangers. Yes, that's Steve Martin, actor and comedian and banjo player with his Grammy-winning bluegrass band. They were joined by a guest vocalist on that song, a guy named uh, McCartney. I think we'll hear something more about him later in the program. That's a great tune. We're talking with Jeremy Corbell, investigative filmmaker, about uh, contact in the desert. Uh, and in this segment, we'll hear a little bit more about the good, the bad, the ugly of that event. And then uh, talk about his his take, his presentation, UFOs, A Clockwork Orange. Much more to come here on Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back. Jeremy Corbell, one other question about uh, about Jacques Ballet. So he is uh, he's jumped back in with both feet. Uh, is very active, which is a good thing. He's asking for evidence to analyze. It seems like he's uh, maybe working with somebody, uh, a team of some sort that uh, is looking for physical evidence. That's that's good. I mean, that would be enough to, to convince colleagues who might otherwise not be willing to take this topic on. I'm curious whether young people who were there know who Jacques Ballet is. Yeah, well, he actually, he, he did mention he was working with Hal Putoff. He said that in his, you know, public lecture, which is interesting because that goes way back to the, the days of SRI, Stanford Research Institute. So I don't know exactly who he has on his team, but he is doing this analysis. As far as, you know, younger people and, and youth coming out to see him, oh, yeah, they knew who he was. I mean, you know, he's kind of the rock star of contact in the desert. You can't miss him. I mean, a tall guy with the silver hair and he's French. I mean, you, you cannot miss the guy. And, and definitely, younger people knew about him. You know, they, they came with copies of his books that, that, that I don't even have. So, so he's out there. His, his message has been heard. But, but now we're getting something new, and that's what's really interesting. Uh, what else? Anything else new that jumps out at you that, that is in the positive category? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it was all positive. I mean, I'm, I'm going to talk other stuff, I'm sure, but, but essentially the, the whole event was just so cool because people really are hungry, and they're more educated than we ever were, you know, 10, 20 years ago because they have more data, more information, and their, their ability to get that information. Even though there's a big signal-to-noise problem, if they want, they can get that information. So I, I feel like kind of hopeful tonight for the field of ufology, actually. Well, I mean, you sat next to Valet during some of the presentations that which you told me about it uh, in a co phone conversation we had, and, and he kind of had to shake his head here and there. There are some names. I'm not going to bash anybody now, but there are names that are very well known that promote themselves very much using social media and various other means, uh, names that I would think would be more on the tips of the tongues of young people because they're out there. Um, 
Uh, any thoughts on that? Any thoughts from Valet on that? Yeah, I mean, you could see it on his face, what his thoughts were on that. But, you know, look, essentially, I, I'm making a joke. I said this at my presentation. Noise is the new black. And, and, and that's, that's the problem. That, that's what's happening right now is people are making these incredible claims. And it's as if they just say it enough times that it's going to be true. But it doesn't end up being true. You know, I briefed the Pentagon, I briefed the chief of staff, I briefed the Department of Defense and former and current heads of the CIA. No matter how many times you say that, that's not the way it works, and they don't need your briefing. And I think that's kind of the reaction that I mentioned to you that I saw in Jacques, because I was having the same reaction, just, you know, put my head in my hand. Really? Is this, is this really what's amplified at these events? But look, Jacques made a good point. He said, it's a free country, and it tastes better you know, to, to eat stuff that's not true. And so essentially the, that, that, that's, that noise that we're hearing, the, those, those individuals that, that promote these phantasmagorical stories without evidence, without proof, and in fact, they, they have the, the opposite of proof. That, you know, when they do that, all it does at first, it baits people, and it'll get them interested in this topic. And I think that is powerful, though, because people can tell really quickly when it starts to turn south, and they start to see that it's more about the glorification of the individual rather than the information, and then they're still interested, and they want answers, and that's when they're going to find out the real stuff. Well, so I, I hope that's totally true. Bad. Yeah. I hope that's true. So you're, you're this, one of the themes that you explore is, uh, is noise, uh, the noise in the field. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a huge so, problem. I mean, Jock has talked about that, the, the different layers of deception. Let's get into your presentation then, this clockwork orange thing, because it sort of is uh, part of that theme as well. Uh, what do you mean? Okay, just really simply, it's, it's a metaphor from an Anthony Burgess book and the Stanley Kubrick film called The Clockwork Orange, which I hope everybody has seen. It's an incredible uh, film and, and a great book. And, you know, the basic hypothesis of that theory, if you look at the movie and just kind of compare it to that idea, is, that, is a mechanistic or even, I'd say, like robotic characteristics of a phenomenon that's presenting itself to us in the form of things like UFOs. So I'm exploring this concept that UFOs, the whole idea is that it's bigger than just, you know, what you see with your eyes, that possibly there's an interactive artificial intelligence that's manipulating the desires of humanity. And this is not just something I'm coming up with. This is actually shown in, in, in a lot of the cases, the way that the phenomenon displays itself in the forms of UFOs to humans and their reactions. It has precognition and, and it has a hyperintelligence and it sees, seems to be in command of this UFO display. So that's the concept of UFOs as a clockwork orange is that there is a facade, you know, that inside of this thing that looks organic and it looks like it has uh, juice, that in fact it's mechanistic. Uh, the idea of it being a display, which I have heard uh, a couple of times in specific contexts, uh, Skinwalker Ranch, for example, and we'll come back to that later, but uh, the idea that a lot of what we see in the UFO field is a display, a performance, uh, a demonstration, uh, almost like sometimes uh, a distraction. Um, a shiny bauble to show to a magpie or something. Do you, is that sort of where you're going? Yeah, I'm, I'm unfortunately coming to that conclusion. I mean, I started off as a real, like, nuts and bolts looking into the UFO phenomenon. I was a G1 
jiu-jitsu athlete, it was very simple. When you had to go against an opponent that was bigger than you, you had to have better technique. So that's what I focused on, and that translated over into my investigation of UFOs. And I, oddly enough, as I go deeper into this, I mean, as you know, because I, you know, I've asked you questions, essentially, as I go deeper into this, it becomes obvious and it becomes apparent that these seemingly illogical uh, moments that people are having, the, the, the way that these technologies or the phenomenon itself toys with our technologies, it, it mocks them. It, you know, it'll fly circles around our fastest planes. It shows us what it wants us to see just enough so it lures us in. And, and, it, and it shows signs of being mechanistic. Well, I've seen, uh, I'll just share with the audience that I've seen papers that have been written by uh, some pretty advanced thinkers in this area, privately circulated, not for public uh, dissemination, uh, where they have uh, analyzed data and come to the conclusion that whatever intelligence is intruding into our reality is uh, is likely AI uh, using robotic or artificial mechanical means to to handle physical things. And um, is that sort of where you're going? Well, you know, that is where the evidence is leading. I, I'm not making a conclusion. I'm proposing an idea based upon what I've seen. I'd like to say, look, these are craft coming from the Palladies, or these are craft coming from, you know, another star system. But that is not the evidence that I've been given. So over time, as I look at this, the, the field gets stranger and stranger. And I'm, not the, I'm like the last person saying it. A lot of people have said this. I'm just catching up. Yeah, you know, John Keel wrote something along those lines. Jacques Vallée has given it his own interpretation over the years, uh, looking at particular incidents that seem, uh, on the face, preposterous. And they're almost made to look preposterous on purpose uh, to challenge sort of the outside limits of our, our, uh, our believability, our credibility. Yeah, and, and in fact, you know, we, we kind of, Jacques and I had a, had a little bit of time today to spend together, and we actually talked about that. And we talked about, you know, the, the original theory that came out that was, you know, essentially that human beings are livestock, you know, that, that, that what's going on is almost like we're property or cattle. And that was proposed a long time ago. And I, I just wanted to see what Jacques would say about that. And, and he actually agreed. And that blew me away, that, that maybe what's going on is, is much deeper. It's much deeper than lights in the sky, obviously. But that, that is a scary thought. I mean, that's, you know, even... Even Lear was talking about that a while ago. Well, I mean, that goes back to Charles Fort, the, right. the, the originator of the whole term Fortian, uh, talking about us being property, that somebody owns the earth. Um, and a lot of people have expanded on that, Keel and Ballet uh, among them. Uh, it's a very disturbing thing. And if you were looking for a reason to have a cover-up or a reason why uh, somebody doesn't open up the hangar doors and show us the craft or open up the file drawers and show us the secrets, Maybe that's it, because I think people would have a hard time dealing with the idea that we're property or that we're livestock or we're farmed or harvested in some way. Yeah, that's a, it's an absolutely, like, you know, repulsive idea, I think, to, to the human mind. But, you know, look, ultimately, whatever this phenomenon is, if it was aggressive, if it was, you know, malevolent, we wouldn't even be here. And so this is kind of the, the thing, is that these displays that we see, 
you know, and that is something I, you know, I can say Jacques also said today was that, you know, these displays seem to come in a pattern that is indicative of education, that there is something to be learned simply by looking by the pattern. You know that it is reinforcing constantly ideas into society and into the, you know, kind of human consciousness. And I think that's fascinating. You know, I think uh, at least many of the cases that I've dealt with, if, if it is some sort of an AI or some omnipotent, uh, I guess it's not omnipotent, that, that it can be fooled, that it can be circumvented. It doesn't know everything, uh, that there is at least hope that you can study it, figure it out, uh, and and survive. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, if it if it intended to wipe us out, it could certainly do that. It, it's demonstrated mastery of the skies and technology, things of that sort. Um, you, you would think it would be uh, tough to discern um, uh, what's real and what isn't and, and what its motives are. It, it's a really gray area, and this is where you get a lot of the noise. Because what happens is people have a profound, true experience, but they, they want to assign belief to it. And so they seek out all evidence to prove that that belief that they have is the truth. And that's where we get into muddy waters. Because whatever's going on, we really need to be able to be objective and look at it. And this is the really gray area. How, it's like studying the human brain. How do you do it with, with the human brain? I mean, we are so immersed in the phenomenon. It is so much more uh, prevalent around us than, than people think. There are so many more UFO sightings than people imagine. Just talk to your neighbor. Talk to your family. Just ask the question. More people have had experiences than you can possibly understand. I have a guest this weekend, a friend who's a helicopter pilot in the military, and he's staying with me. And he was saying that within the military, he didn't run into a lot of people that were interested in this stuff. And I asked him, well, how many people do you really ask? And that was the truth, because in that capacity that you're working, that's not the first topic of conversation. Usually it's staying alive in a helicopter, right? So... My, uh, I guess, challenge to the audience here tonight, everybody that's listening, okay, is that you ask people, ask the question, have you had an experience that you can't explain? Have you had an experience that you can't account for with a version of reality that you understand? And you will be amazed how many people have been affected by the UFO, but by the phenomenon itself, all things paranormal. You know, it drives you crazy thinking, why do some people see it and others don't? I, it, some of the explanation is people don't look. You know, they're looking at their phones, they're driving, they're not looking at the skies, or they're not paying attention. And even if they see something, they it doesn't process or whatever. Uh, a lot of people just don't look at all. Uh, but it, then it gets down to, if it is a display, why some people are allowed to see it and others are not, uh, does it want uh, us to learn? Is it messing with us for a reason and something that's not sinister or deadly to humanity but some reason like uh showing us that a whole bunch of stuff as at skinwalker ranch is connected that ufos poltergeist bigfoot parallel dimensions creatures whatever are all connected in some level yeah i I asked jacques this question today actually is you know do you see this phenomenon as homogenous throughout the world throughout time i mean we're talking he's been you know studying this for 60 plus years is it throughout time and throughout the world homogenous and cross-cultural? And does belief or does desire to see something help you see something or help you experience something or have you experienced something? 
And he said, no, it, it appears to be homogenous. It appears to be the same throughout time, throughout culture, throughout the earth, that this phenomenon is consistently engaging humanity in the forms of UFOs and beyond, but that the desire to see it does not necessarily, you know, other than false sightings, does not necessarily help you to see it, that it almost chooses at random people you would never imagine, people that they would never imagine, end up engaging a full-on flying saucer landing. Jacques has written for a lot of years about a control system that he thinks whatever this intelligence is, it uses a control system to sort of manipulate us, mess with us. Uh, does he explain that further? Do you have a better understanding of what he's talking about? I mean, again, that I, I hate talking like this, but, yeah, I asked him about that today. Like, that was a part of a personal conversation, and I, I straight up asked him, what do you mean by the control system? I mean, do you mean an educational system? He did not talk about that at his lectures, but, you know, I think that that is still firmly that, – that was conveyed. That was still firmly his understanding at this current time, that the control system is some sort of uh, educational system. To, to some end that we don't understand. You know, he's still, I mean, he, from the beginning, when he was back even working with Hynek and, and before that, and then in, in Blue Book and, and ever since, it's always been a matter of data, collecting cases, collecting more information. He's always believed it's a solvable mystery. Is that sort of your take on it as well, that with enough information, we can figure it out? You know, I, I've never been one to be obsessed with, you know, the, the, the solving it completely, because I don't even know what that means. That means you, you, you think you know the parameters of the problem that you're in. What, what I want to do is move the needle forward. My, my films, I focus on facts. I focus on science. I focus on, you know, also the human characters and what they've gone through. But I, I really try to take a critical approach. And the reason for that is I want to move the needle forward. I don't know where we're going to end. I, I don't have that answer. And it's the people that pretend they have that answers. That's the noise. They don't have the answers. The uh, back to Clockwork Orange for a second. Um, we'll go to a break here in about a minute. Uh, the idea of reading the book and incorporating that into your presentation, uh, you know, I remember the movie, uh, let alone the book. Uh, the, the book was really tough because of the language, the, the weird language that you have to absorb. Is, uh, is that part of your presentation? No, I wish I, I would have. I would have talked in that dialect that would have been over everybody's head. Uh, that's you know crazy out there. But essentially, I, I think what really inspired me, and you have this you know protagonist in the book who's going through this experience where you know even though they have violence and all of these problems, they, they don't want to be turned into a clockwork orange. They want to be a human being with the, their own will. And so you know that's kind of where the metaphor came from. It's a deep book. It's a powerful book. But essentially, you know, the, the idea of having control over one's life, you know, and not feeling out of control. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's the, the, the baseline theory is that what we're looking at is absolutely the evidence is showing that there's some sort of intelligence that probably is artificial in some way because it does make mistakes and it, and it is manipulating the desire of humanity. For sure, it's doing that. All right, you got a number of films that uh, that you have developed and that yeah. you've uh, you have available, and we're going to uh, talk in particular about Patient Seventeen. It sort of flows from uh, Jacques Vallée's discussion of looking for physical evidence because you had some, you, yeah. you got some as part of that uh, film project. When we come back, we'll talk about Patient Seventeen, and then also um, we need some help from the audience uh, regarding a dramatic case involving 
uh, several hundred military personnel. It hasn't been publicized, but we're going to hear about it in just a moment, talking with uh, investigative filmmaker Jeremy Corbell and the Eurythmics, taking us into the break with a theme song from, uh, I guess it could be a theme song from uh, UFO conferences, Would I Lie to You? We're talking with filmmaker Jeremy Corbell about his various projects, uh, film projects and investigations. Uh, we'll, in this half hour, we're going to get into uh, Patient 17, the alien implant uh, case. He's got some updates on that, uh, as well as uh, Nano Man. And then we're going to get into a conversation uh, about a big case he's working. At, uh, I've uh, also been involved with. Uh, we need your help on it. Uh, there were hundreds of witnesses, but the, sort of the uh, cone of silence has been dropped over this thing. So we'll give you the broad strokes of that. Uh, Jeremy, by the way, uh, coming to us uh, from the Pioneer Motel. Um, in Pioneer Town, which is where he lives, and right next to the world famous Pappy and Harriet Saloon, uh, I think probably uh, if you've been out at the to the desert out there, you know about Pappy and Harriet's. It's a it's an institution, and I'm sure it has people who should be institutionalized. That's just a joke. We'll be right back, and we'll get to your calls and comments and questions closer to the bottom of the hour. So if you get online, you're going to be there for a little while. But we'll get to your calls as soon as we can. We'll be right back with more Coast to Coast AM. Jeremy, before we leave this idea about the clockwork orange and the possibility of it being an AI or mechanical, robotic sort of intelligence, uh, what, what are you going for in evidence in that regard? I'll ask the question in this context. Um, the first time that I heard this, uh, that sort of theory advanced, it was in connection with Skinwalker, Skinwalker Ranch, and there had been a mutilation of an, uh, a calf in broad daylight on a Sunday morning. The rancher and his wife were out on the pasture, when it happened, and within a 40-minute period or so, this calf was completely stripped of its flesh. And and when the scientific team uh, sent the remains out for analysis, they found that it had been carved up. I mean, they, they figured it determined that uh, different instruments had been used, metallic instruments, one very sharp, like a, a, a scalpel, and one sort of heavy, like a cleaver, almost as if it had been processed in a meatpacking plant. Um, is that sort of what you mean when you're talking about a mechanical or robotic sort of a, a operative here? Yeah, in a way, the, the phenomenon is not sociable. It, you know, it, it's there's a sense of humor to it. It seems like there's a trickster element, but it, it's very. It seems cold. It, it, it seems like, and I'm looking for patterns in this. And this is a new developing theory. This is an idea that I just put forward for my new presentation. But it's something I'm seriously looking into. Looking at the patterns, I mean, some of my friends, like uh, there's a guy named Jules Erbach who owns a company co called Otoy, and they do some incredible AI work. And maybe I'm being influenced, you know, by talking with him about the UFO phenomenon. Uh, you actually had him on your show. Yes. But, yeah, but, uh, you know, essentially it, it's looking at these patterns and looking at these displays and looking at the control system and essentially looking at the possibility of an educational process. And if you think about it, if you're going to send an intelligence from far away or from somewhere close, if you're going to send it, it's more likely that there's some sort of program to teach humanity about how to evolve in certain ways. And this is, in fact, what it's tried to show us in different ways. It has intervened, and that intervention is what's so important. It's, it's not like your friend Joe coming over to your house. This is some sort of intelligence that is trying to manipulate the way we see reality. Well, a lot of people have theorized, humans who are involved in our, the American space program, it said it makes a lot more sense if we're going to send something out to cover vast distances to send 
robotic probes rather than uh, living people. You could sell, send sort of self-replicating machines that uh, you know can pick up materials along the way when if they have to travel for say thousands of of years. Uh, <clears throat> that would uh, that would make a lot of sense. So I suppose a a machine type uh, intelligence that gets here from somewhere else would make sense in that level. Yeah, I mean, go, going back to the work of, of John Keel, which everybody should kind of familiarize yourself with what has happened in this field before, the interactions remain so bizarre. They're not normal interactions if it truly is extraterrestrials from other planets coming here. Oh, come on. How many daisies can you pick to know the genome of the daisy or whatever? I mean, this is a very fascinating thing. There's too much activity That's the thing I really want to kind of make sure people understand tonight. Ask the person next to you. Ask the people around you. You will be hard-pressed to find a group of 10 people where where one of those people hasn't had a profound life-changing experience because of the phenomenon, UFOs or beyond. Uh, Let's talk about this case you're working on. And I know there are limits on what you can say because you don't want to sort of you don't want to tip somebody off that you're onto it. You don't want to um, muddy the waters, but you do need help. So give us the broad strokes of this thing. Okay. Well, let me just first back up one second and just say, look, I'm a filmmaker. I'm not a scientist. You know, my qualifications are just only what I've done before. So I'm trying to find out certain cases that I think have high value. And, And look, uh, another thing, like as you said, I'm, I'm here at the Pioneer Time Motel by Pappy and Harrods, who, by the way, one of the, the, the Beatles just played here, Sir Paul, which is pretty cool. And, and what inspires me about this topic is that I was just talking with the guard who's outside here. He's a young kid, and he said he got in, he was listening to Coast to Coast on the way up here, didn't know I'd be broadcasting out of here. His grandfather got him into this show. We have multiple generations of people that are asking this question. So with, with my film work, I, I learned from a guy named Niles Harrison. He's kind of my sensei or my guru with filmmaking. I go to him when I can't make the camera turn on. Uh, his, his father, Randall Harrison, in Kentucky, he's a huge fan of the show, and, and he watched some of my films and said, keep seeking the truth. So that's what I'm trying to do with my films. Now, this investigation you're speaking about, it's not one of the films I have out. It's not a case I've ever talked about. But I am going to appeal for help from the audience because it's a profoundly important case, but it has a massive cone of silence and secrecy put over it because this case is a developing story, but it's a military UFO and USO event that I've been digging into. Well, let's hear it. Okay. So essentially, there's a a term, anomalous aerial vehicles. It's something that... I didn't really wasn't familiar with. People know Hillary Clinton said UAPs. Uh, So so anomalous aerial vehicles, this idea that, uh, well, here's what happened. So basically off the coast of California in 2004, there was an event. And there was an event where there was a deployment and there were military pilots who engaged an object or a series of objects actually over a series of days. As you said, I, can't, I don't want to get into the specifics right now because I don't want this to get out of control. I want to make sure to try to find direct witnesses and try to find exactly the facts. So I can tell you a few specifics about it, uh, but again, the broad strokes. 
Uh, you you want to tell enough for the people who had witnessed it to recognize it and Correct. then reach out if they're willing to talk to you. So there were hundreds of people who saw this, right? Well, visually saw it is it, different. There was one pilot in particular, and I have talked with him, but he has given me no authorization to talk about that. But there was an individual who was within 100 feet of this thing and and engaged it. It actually actively jammed his weapon systems and radar systems. And, and briefly, for a moment, there was footage. There was footage that was out in the public domain, but that got shut down. That got shut down real quick. But I want to give people enough, yes, so that if they were part of that deployment, so again, just 2004, off the coast of California, you're on deployment, and your deployment is held back. And there's a reason for that, and there's a lot of buzz about that. In fact, a lot of people on the ships knew about it, there, you know, there, there are stories from, from people who said that everybody was, in, was interested in this and kind of made a joke about it the next day. So if you were on those, if you were, if you were part of that deployment, you'll know what I'm saying and, and, and reach out to me. But, but this object, if you know more about it, it was oblong. It seemed like white porcelain. And it seemed it was coming in at really, really aggressive trajectories and appeared to be docking with a black, dark USO about the size of a 747 under the water, which is creating a huge churning circle. Now, remember, this is current. This is a current case. This is 2004. That's pretty current. So this thing comes in at a trajectory that would set off alarm bells. Oh, we yeah, can, major We can one. figure out what that means. And then it goes down to the water level and looks like it's docking with something that's under the water. And all these military units, pilots, et cetera, it's setting off alarm bells and sensors, and they try to engage it, and it doesn't go well. They had the Spy-1 radar fixed on this thing, as well as other agencies you can imagine, like NORAD, that kind of thing, tracking objects coming in and out. Because this thing would come from 80,000 feet to 50 feet above the water in a matter of seconds. All right. If uh, someone is listening... Uh, naval personnel, we're obviously talking about. Uh, if you're listening, this rings a bell. You know something about it, and you're willing to share information. You can reach out to me. You can reach out to Jeremy. You can call anonymously or email, and uh, we'd like to hear from you. I'd like to know more about this. Let's talk about Patient 17 for a minute. That was your film. You came on here a year or so ago and talked to us about it. Uh, you had uh, participated with Dr. Roger Lear, the late Dr. Lear, in what proved to be his final uh, surgery to remove a suspected alien implant. What's happening? All right, so essentially in my presentation, UFOs is a clockwork orange, I went over a bunch of my films. I have a number of films, but, but this feature-length film in particular, I, I did a lot of kind of talking about the, the isotopic analysis of this object that came out of Patient 17. I, I have exciting news tonight. All my films are available on Vimeo, but, you know, who watches Vimeo? I mean, I've rented, I'm guilty, I've rented like one video on Vimeo. Well, I'm excited to say tonight, I, I met a guy, he's a really cool guy named Jim Martin, and he's with The Orchard, which is a, a fantastic distribution company, and fantastic because they don't want to change a frame of my footage. They want me to tell the story like I told it, and that is a rare breed of distributor in the field of, of, of films here. So I'm working with The Orchard now. I've done an agreement, and Patient 17 will be available in your homes through your TV set. This is going to be 
huge eyes on this case, which is so important because this case has turned out to be a fascinating case, a case that I did not think was going to be fascinating. I was almost mocking it when I went into it. I didn't believe it. I have to be honest with you. I didn't believe it's possible that we would find anomalous results for this alleged alien implant in a guy who's become my friend that I call patient 17 in the movie. But in fact, we did. I cross. I showed these results, I talked with, uh, to Jacques today about these results because he was going off about everything that he was working on. And sure enough, this is an anomalous result that I have. Uh, so you've had, yeah, what is, that's exactly what you said Jacques Vallée was looking for. Right. Um, so you had tests done. Uh, the tests proved to be pretty interesting. Uh, did Jacques ask you, hey, give me a chunk of that stuff? We haven't gone that far, and I have, an, I have a number of laboratories that I want to send it to, but I have to get the piece back. That's the problem. You, I mean, you'll see by watching the movie, I come at this like, let's get to the bottom of this. I told Dr. Lear, you know, before he passed, he was asking me to make a film on him, and I told him, if I make this film, I'm going to tell the truth, and if you're doing anything, if, you're, if this is not true, I'm going to broadcast that. Are you sure you want that? And he said, yes, I'm sure. I think there's something to this. I've been studying this for decades. So sure enough, he cuts out what ends up being the, you know, the last alleged implant that, that he'll ever do because he passed away. And I ended up having to be you know, the researcher on that, the scientist on that. So I went ahead and I got this, uh, you know, this little object of patient 17 analyzed both elementally and isotopically. There were 36 different elements in this small, tiny object, but most importantly, there was zinc, and the zinc, 64, was outside, far outside the terrestrial norm, meaning this was made somewhere, and not only was this made somewhere, but most likely it was made somewhere not anywhere near the Milky Way galaxy. So that's the, that's the implication if these results are accurate. I looked at cross-contamination, uh, everything you can imagine. I talked with the head meteorite specialist at UCLA. I talked with a nanotoxicologist. I tried to hit this from every angle. But here's the deal. It's one test. That's all I've done. They are definitively anomalous results. But the question is, will that be replicated in future tests? And I need to do more blind future tests on this, but I've got to get the piece back to do that. Well, that's pretty exciting. I mean, it's exciting, too, that... Uh... The, the deal you have with The Orchard means a lot of people will see your film, and this is the first of several projects. Absolutely. And, and look, eyeballs on this film is important. It, it's a topic that is so interesting and fascinating. I mean, you don't have a heartbeat if you're not interested in this. So this movie is going to be seen. And it, it, look, I film, I direct, I conduct all the interviews. I do the audio, the editing, the sound. I'm a one-man show. People are always asking for more footage from me. It takes time to make good work, and Patient 17 is good work. And I am excited for the public to engage it, for it to be scrutinized, for people to decide what they believe, and most importantly, for the issue to be moved forward, whether this piece is anomalous or not. And I hope to find out definitively, but right now, we got something anomalous. Let's take a couple of calls east of the Rockies. Kurt in Chicago. Hi, Kurt. You're on with Jeremy Corbell. George, Jeremy, pleasure to meet you guys. Yeah, I was on my way up to uh, North Dakota. I was driving by Fort McCoy, and I saw three objects there, each uh, larger than an aircraft carrier, illuminated by different lights. And uh, Fort McCoy was on fire, buddy. 
everybody was uh, shining lights up there, and and uh, all hell was breaking loose. I pulled over. I lost my radio, my CB, the guys I was talking to on the radio I couldn't talk to anymore. And what caught my attention is when you said artificial intelligence. There was nothing artificial about this. This was like an actual attack of Fort McCoy when I went by there. Yeah, thanks for the for the story. And you know, don't misunderstand the the word artificial. That doesn't mean unreal. These events are unreal. And in fact, when people engage these craft, oftentimes they talk about the skin of the craft being more like a creature than being like hard metal. So the the whole spectrum of of this of this phenomenon. When we say an artificial intelligence, or we're talking or theorizing about the idea of the clockwork orange, it's more the idea that what you're shown is not really what it appears. And, and some of the evidence and some of the generational evidence. So, for example, if you have a, a, a girl and she tells me about her UFO experience and she had never asked her mother or her grandmother if they've ever seen anything anomalous, once they ask that question, it's unbelievable. It tends to be a generational, a generational and familial thing. And I, I can't account for that. But there is, there is some sort of organization to this information. Uh, so, Kurt, did you report this to anybody? Did you call the police, the military, anything like that? No, no. You know, I've seen these things before around the country and around my house. And, uh, you know, the same experience I was around them, you know, is like a demonic experience. You know, when I've met people who are possessed, same type of experience. Um, you know, when I stopped the truck and opened my windows, all I could smell was burnt flesh and electric ozone. Um, there was definitely something intelligent going on there. Wow. And, uh, you know, from my experience, it just comes across as demonic entity. Uh, nothing cool. else can explain, you know, coming from, you know, their appearance, the way they leave. Uh, the area where they come into an area, you know, it all explains to me being demonic. You know, you don't know. I mean, um, demonic, one man's demon is another man's alien is uh, somebody else's poltergeist. I mean, uh, you're describing a lot of physical damage, though, and and, uh, evidence. Was it reported on the news? Did somebody come and investigate? You know, I've never heard anything from it. And I'm not surprised, you know, at the same time when uh, there was reports of UFOs in my community, there was nothing on the news, uh, but all our neighbors seen it, okay? Uh, some type of craft beaming lights down on the church and different houses in the community, but nothing was said about it. So, all right, Kurt, so thanks for calling. appreciate you sharing that story with us. We're talking with uh, investigative filmmaker Jeremy Corbell. Uh, we just heard about his uh, film, Patient 17, being picked up by The Orchard, so a lot of folks will get a chance to see it. When we come back, we'll take more of your questions, uh, calls, and comments, and hopefully somebody who uh, heard that story about that unusual incident off the coast of California who has uh, personal information will be able to uh, call us and uh, share some additional insight. Fleetwood Mac takes us into the break here on Coast to Coast AM. Classic tune from Pink Floyd, uh, Pigs, three different ones. Got a chance to see Roger Waters last year uh, at Desert Trip unloading on the corporate powers that be. Got a feeling he's just getting started. We're talking with filmmaker Jeremy Corbell about his various projects. A lot of folks on the phone lines now with questions and ideas and stories. We'll get right back to them in just a moment here on Coast to Coast AM. 
You know, Jeremy, we've talked about this before, about how uh, you get into the paranormal realm, UFO stuff, and the lines kind of blur between different phenomena. The Bigfoot has a UFO connection, or ghosts sound like aliens or demons, or, you know, it, it almost is this, as if the phenomena is telling us they're all connected somehow. The lines really blur, and some of the cases uh, seem preposterous on purpose. I'm thinking about, like, there was a case in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, maybe you've read about it, where these uh, aliens attacked a family, and they were shooting them. It was almost like a shooting gallery where they'd hit them, and they'd, then they'd turn around and go in the other direction. Um, totally non-reproducible. Uh, hard, people have a hard time believing it. Almost seems to be that way on purpose. Does that fit into your narrative about the clockwork orange and the mechanical artificial intelligence or, or not? Yeah, I mean, one of the first things that really began that kind of thought process, there was a, a case out here in Pioneertown. It's a guy I got to know, really straightforward guy. And after about a year of knowing him, he says, well, since you're into this, I've never told anybody the story, but I, I want to tell you something that couldn't have happened. And I said, what do you mean something that couldn't have happened? And he described this event in 1945. He was at a public pool as a child in Los Angeles, and as he's swimming under the water, he said, I knew I could swim to the pool and, and back again about halfway with full breath. He said, all of a sudden, it's as if I could breathe forever. Time just stood still. There was no more splashing in the water. It was almost like it, an absolute pause in the physical reality that we live in. And when he came up, there was a craft, I mean, a mothership with texture and everything. And the strangest thing is, I mean, before he was able to even leave the public pool, he remembers them setting up, you know, a card table, two guys in suits, taking everybody's description. What did you see? And it was just this absolute, I didn't even ask for this story, but this is so common. These totally bizarre, absolute twilight zone twists of what you'd consider normal reality. There's nothing normal about these experiences. I mean, enough people have them, you can consider them normal, but they just absolutely twist your reality from temporally to, to, to just your perceptions. Uh, you said that, you know, if you ask the people around you, you'll be amazed how many uh, folks have an experience that they haven't told anyone about. Have you asked that of the people around you? I mean, you live out there in Pioneer Town. It's in the desert. It's a great big uh, open sky, very dark at night. It's a, it's a cultural thing. Uh, yes, of course, I ask everybody. I've been asking everybody this question since I was a kid. And from, from a kid that I asked in India who was selling chai on the side of the road, he had an opinion about this. He had an experience. And then you, you go all the way to where I am now in Pioneer Town, California. And here, you, every, it is unbelievable how many. You have an uncle, you have an aunt, you have a grandfather, you have a mother. Those people. If you just ask them, they've had an, someone has had an experience. It is absolutely, people just don't ask the question, and, and that's the problem. First-time caller, Michael, in Tampa, Florida. How you doing, Michael? You're on with Jeremy Corbell. Uh, how are you guys doing tonight? All right. What's on your mind? Um, I'm a paranormal investigator. I deal mostly with hauntings down here. And uh, recently, I've been working uh, with other groups on a couple of cases, and I was talking with a buddy of mine about these cases, and he's does a great deal in uh, UFO research and the correlations between 
the sightings that people have had and the uh, hauntings that I am investigating are, the dates are almost right on top of each other. Do you have any belief that there is a correlation between uh, UFO sightings and paranormal activities such as poltergeist? Yeah, it's interesting you ask that. Uh, you know, there's there's new content on my website. I, I try to always create new content, and I'm you know recently I've been working on a number of cases, I guess, that, that seem to indicate that there is a phenomenon that does display itself as UFOs, but additionally that it can come across as, as poltergeist. As you know, I think George said earlier tonight, you know, one person's demon is another person's uh, you know alien. And, and that's the situation. We're, we're trying to classify these, these things into categories we can understand them. And we all take a cultural perspective to that. If you ask people in the Amazon of Brazil what they think of, of the lights, it's very different than you, if you ask a scientist from Silicon Valley. And I think that's the crux of it, is that we're explaining things with words that, that best fit how we see things. Patient 17 called them alien gangsters. He said, they're gangsters. You didn't invite them over. They come and they take you. They do what they want with you. They tag you. And at least he was let free. And so everybody has a different opinion based on culture. So, yes, I do think they're connected. I think there's something to that. I don't know. I think. Thank you, Michael. And, you know, a lot of people have reported on this program, uh, Jeremy, it's a very positive experience for them. Absolutely. Sometimes it is. Uh, you know, for, for my friend that I talked with, that I just talked about, it was a very positive experience. But the things that haunt them later in life is not being able to explain it to their loved ones. That's what haunts them. That's what haunts a fighter pilot who, who engaged that object I was talking about earlier. Is how do you explain this to your family? You know what you saw, but, but you know what you saw. But, but how does that relate to the larger context of when you're telling your kids goodnight and telling them what the world is like? It's a huge mystery, big question. Well, a lot of people don't tell them at all. They don't, certainly don't tell their right. kids when they're saying goodnight. Uh, <laughs> west of the Rockies, uh, Joy in Santa Cruz. Hi, Joy. Good morning to you, Jeremy, and to you, George. I love you both. Um, Jeremy. I am one of the people who have seen things coming up out of the out of the Monterey Bay. That's awesome, Joy. I used to uh, teach jujitsu and live in Santa Cruz for about ten years, and that is absolutely like Pioneer Town, a very mysterious place. I don't doubt you saw them. Think about it this way: if you were going to hide on this earth, if you had a craft of unknown origin, the the most Land that you could do that on is under the water. So a lot yeah. of people, USOs, is, I've actually been nudged in that direction by a military contact of mine saying that there is something to the UFO thing bigger than you think is what he told me. And, and so I'm very fascinated about the USO subject. And finally, these cases are landing in my lap. So if you have a USO case out there, shoot me an email at Extraordinary Beliefs. Well, do you want me to tell you what it is? What oh, I go, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. Um, we were we were having dinner with a friend of ours, and I was walking along the, uh, up there in in um, up above, so I could really see the bay. And this green light started coming up out of the water, and it had kelp all over it. And then the kelp started to drip off. It was kind of a round 
object. And then it went all the way down to, I don't know, you know where Moss Landing is? which is very well. Power plant is? I, I, I do very well, yeah. It hovered there for about 20 minutes. Wow. Wow. And, and let me ask you this. We had one of those spy glasses, you know, where you, you know, those brass telescopes where you can look at something really closely. Did you have an emotional impression from, from this sighting, or was it just purely visual? I had a bit of an emotional feeling because it freaked me out. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, Normal reaction. Yeah, well, it was a reaction, sure. But we were able to look at it through the spyglass. And what we saw, instead of just green lights around it, we saw amber, green, amber, green windows all the way around this thing. I'm so jealous, Joy. (laughs) No, you don't want to be jealous. This kind of gave me a foreboding feeling. That's commonly that's commonly said. That's actually what Bob Lazar said when people asked him what did it feel like when you walked into the UFO that he was he was back engineering and he said honestly it felt ominous. Yeah. Joy, thank you for the call. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Wild card, John in Rhode Island. Hi, John. Good morning. Hey, uh, George. Boy, I finally got through. Well, I had an after death experience. After death. After this experience, somebody who came back to see me, this happened about a year ago, and I, I told many people about it, but, you know, they give me that look, you know. Uh, I was, uh, my bedroom is upstairs, but I was downstairs in front of my computer, uh, checking my email and so on, when something caught my eye to the left. I looked, and there, standing in solid form, was Pauline Lamothe. She came from Bristol, Rhode Island. Now, I knew her whole family. I had been to her house. I met her husband, her three uh, grown children and all. But she was there in solid form. This was not not a shadow. But she had died like eight or nine years ago. Did she and say something? We both worked at the Raytheon Company in uh, Portsmouth, Rhode Island. Then they worked on uh, subs, I guess. We used to make uh, pots for the submarines. So uh, she, there she was in this uh, bright orange dress. And uh, I, I was flabbergasted because uh, when I told people about this, they, they give me that look, you know. I'm a veteran of World War II. I'm uh, 95 years old. So... Uh, I didn't know what to do. She didn't say anything, but uh, she had a smile on her face like she was glad to see me, you know. And uh, I was, uh, I didn't say anything. She didn't say anything. But uh, after all, she she had been dead for quite a while, eight or nine years. Um, So what do you think that was about? Um, Was there unfinished business between the two of you or something? She she was... uh, say in solid form i i knew her we both worked at raytheon company so i knew her for you know close to 40 years wow and uh so i i didn't say anything she didn't say anything and uh, i said well gee uh, the only thing i can do is i'll get up and i'll touch her but everything was normal 
It wasn't a shadow form. This was solid form. So you walked up and touched her? No, not yet. No. <laughs> That's what I had decided I wanted to do to make sure I, I, I uh, wasn't dreaming, you know. So uh, and? Pauline, Pauline Lamont, there she was, looking right down at me with a smile on her face, her face, her hair, everything was normal. And the dress, to this day, I can still visualize the fabric of her dress, you know. So, John, you said you were you were thinking about walking up and touching her. Did you yeah. try to do that? And how long did this I last? I do that. And the only okay. way I can be sure that she was there. But she was there in solid form, not shadow. So, okay, I finally decided I'd get up and I'll touch her. So I get up, and my finger got just about an inch from her, and then she, she faded away. But she was so real, I, I, I can't say it was, it wasn't shadow form. And I wasn't dreaming, so I don't know uh, uh, what, what else I could say. I, I tell people about it, and you know, they give me that look, you know. Yeah. Well, he's an old veteran, he, he's seeing things, you know. Hey, well, John, thank you for sharing that with us. I'm going to get Jeremy's take on that. Thanks for calling in. Appreciate it. Uh, Jeremy, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that's a beautiful story, and that's incredible, and I, I don't doubt it one bit. I mean, you know, what I've really learned, you know, through all of this is that if you ask the questions, people will tell you that there's really rarely a human that, that on this earth who hasn't had some sort of precognitive or paranormal experience or UFO experience. I mean, they, they, they all are parts of our life deeply, whether we acknowledge and recognize it verbally or not. It also makes you wonder about hot spots. Are there hot spots or are there just spots that have been studied more or that people have paid attention more? Or is this stuff everywhere? Um, or, or is there such a place as a, a portal or a place, uh, some location for whatever reason that more of it happens? I mean, uh, as you said, you know, places where the world is thin, you know, uh, there, there, there appear to be hot spots. I mean, that, that is something else that I talked to Jacqueline today as well, that, that there do seem to be places and times where the activity seems to be amplified. And those are great opportunities to get boots on the ground and begin to study it for, to whatever degree we can learn. Just push the needle forward. We, we want to learn more if we can't learn everything. Go to a quick call from Richie in West Virginia. Hi, Richie. You're on with Jeremy Corbell. Hey, good morning. Thanks for taking my call, George. Sure. Um, Jeremy, congratulations on the film. I look forward to taking a look at it myself. I just got a quick question, and uh, I was just wondering if you think, since I heard you say that you kind of described the feeling of the, of the vehicle being like skin-like texture, if it could be like a symbiote device with some type of intelligence that could be controlled by someone by being used as a symbiote uh, and be able to make all the movements like the UFOs all do. I mean, this is a theory that people have put forward. And, and again, some cases people describe almost like, you know, the craft itself or the skin itself has some sort of living, you know, uh, soul to it. You know, but again, that's the clockwork orange thing, you know. Is it that or is it some sort of, you know, computer holographic display, which, you know, is another interesting thing about the layers of deception that, you know, we can at this time, you know, fake some sort of UFO contact. Our, our government has the ability to do that. So we're dealing with so many unknowns here. I can't attest to if this craft or if the craft have that, you know, 
what you're talking about. But but I think it's it's within possibility. Absolutely. Richie, thanks for the call. Uh, Jeremy, I know because of how you started down this road, the first project in this uh, in this arena was John Lear. I know that when you uh, go out in public, people ask you how he's doing. So I'll ask the question. He's my neighbor, but I don't get to see him or talk to him very often. How is he doing? It depends on the day with John. You know, he's had a rough number of years, and I guess it just depends on, on the day with John. And last time I talked to him, he was doing better. But, you know, he's he's had a rough patch, and he, he won't be here forever, but we're lucky to have him right now. And he's the one that originally, I, I'd say, radicalized my curiosity before it was weaponized. I mean, I was just fascinated by the guy, and I, and I still am. He's a he's an incredible individual, and I, I wish him good health, and hopefully he'll uh, be feeling better. So, if people want to check out your films and uh, what you're up to. Where do they go? They go to extraordinarybeliefs.com. It's, it's like the Twilight Zone, except everything I'm reporting on is real. It's it's absolutely incredible. The extraordinary beliefs of credible individuals. I no longer have the luxury of disbelief in my films. Hopefully, if you watch it you will be curious, you will be actuated into investigating and looking into this. We need help. We need help in this field. We need rational, scientific-minded people that have integrity. So come on out of the woodwork, tell me your stories, and help me find out more about this phenomenon. All right, Jeremy Corbell, thanks. Talk to you soon. Appreciate you being here. Thank you, George.